0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Dr. Rachel Wentz, author of the new book, Chasing Bones, and Archaeologists' Pursuit of Skeletons.
2: The lab is strewn with bodies that have been recovered from various scenarios, you know, found in the woods or drownings, and... Um, So it it was very fascinating work, and I admire the work they do, but it made me really appreciate my archaeological specimens.
0: We'll visit the St. Lucie County Regional History Center and discuss the life of educator and activist Mary McLeod Bethune.
3: I had a hard time initially understanding how one person could do so many things in one lifetime. But then I realized whenever something was not right, she spoke up. Whenever she thought something needed to be done, she did it. From childhood, she made it a point to be useful in her words.
0: All that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Them and bones, and bones, and dry bones. Them bones, and bones, and dry bones. Them bones, and bones, and dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Toe bone connected to the foot bone. Foot bone connected to the ankle bone, ankle bone connected to the leg bone, leg bone connected to the knee bone, knee bone connected to the thigh bone, thigh bone connected to the hip bone, hip bone connected to the backbone, backbone connected to the shoulder bone, shoulder bone connected to the neck bone,
4: neck bone connected to the head bone. Hear the word of the Lord. Then
0: Dr. Rachel Wentz is director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region. While most of her research has taken place in Florida, her work has led her to exotic locations around the world, from London, Paris, and Rome, to Ukraine, the Caribbean, and back to Florida. In her new book, Chasing Bones and Archaeologists' Pursuit of Skeletons, Rachel Wentz describes a lifelong fascination with skeletons and what we can learn from them.
2: For some reason, I've always had this strange kind of obsession with skeletons. I've been fascinated since I was a child. I don't know where it came from, but um, it was also interlinked with my interest in medicine and health. And I just always have remembered, um, you know, loving dinosaur skeletons, our pets when they died. I was always fascinated with what happened with their skeletons. And, um, you know, it was a trip to the Fountain of Youth as a child where I first actually saw a burial ground exposed. And it made such an impression on me, even though I was only, I think, in second grade, The fact that those skeletons had been living, breathing individuals at one time, just like me, it just made this profound effect on me and ever since then I've just been really captivated by what stories the skeletons can tell about the people who once
0: lived. Before beginning studies in the anthropology department at Florida State University that would lead to her lucrative career as an archaeologist, Wentz worked for many years as a firefighter paramedic in Orlando.
2: I did um, you know my fascination with medicine kind of led me to paramedic school which in turn led me to the fire department and I served with Orlando Fire Department and I loved it. I loved the action, the drama, um, treating patients. I loved fighting fire. Um, but after a while, I just got a little restless and I thought I was trying to think of ways that I could expand my knowledge base and, and go in a different direction. And on the fire department, I had always stayed in school. I would completed my BA in anthropology, gone on for a master's degree in administration. But uh, once I became vested with OFD, I finally thought, you know, now's the time to really pursue a second career. And that's when I applied to Florida State and was accepted.
0: In January 2001, Rachel Wenz walked away from her career as a firefighter paramedic in Orlando to pursue graduate studies in bioarchaeology at Florida State University in Tallahassee. She says her work as a paramedic helped prepare her for work as a bioarchaeologist.
2: Oh, it's helped me immensely because... I can really, you know, when I attend conferences and I hear fresh students presenting papers about skeletal analysis, it's always very easy to pinpoint those that have no medical background, that just look at the skeletons as data. And my past history treating patients, knowing how patients suffer, their, how their lives are impacted by either their illness or their injuries gives me such a different perspective when I'm working with the skeletons in the lab because I, I've never looked at them as statistics or as data. I look at them as human beings. And when I look at someone with extensive arthritis or with a, a, a healed traumatic injury, all I think about is what life would have been like for them, how did they manage this illness or injury, and how did it affect their daily existence?
0: In her book, Chasing Bones and Archaeologists' Pursuit of Skeletons, Rachel Wenz provides the reader with a first-hand look at the fascinating world of bioarchaeology.
2: A bioarchaeologist is someone that focuses on human skeletal remains within the archaeological record. And there are different types of subdivisions of bioarchaeology. Some of us focus on molecular analysis, like stable isotopes, and looking at ancient diet, uh, looking at genetic affinity. Um, I happen to be interested in population health and how that health shows up in the skeletal record by looking at um, uh, signs of inappropriate nutrition, nutritional stress, um, infection among the skeleton, traumatic injury, arthritis, arthritis, dental disease, all aspects of health, and that's what my research, both my master's thesis and my dissertation, focused on.
0: Rachel Wenz earned her Ph.D. in the Anthropology Department at Florida State University. She explains what made her studies there so special.
2: Windover. Because Glenn Doran, who I trained under and studied under my entire time at FSU, happened to have excavated the Windover site. He was the lead excavator back in the 1980s when Windover, a 7,000-year-old mortuary pond, was excavated. The remains are housed at Florida State. And so I have spent my entire career as a bioarchaeologist working on these incredible skeletons. In
0: 1982, a backhoe operator working at the Windover Farm subdivision in Titusville uncovered what was clearly human skeletal material. Dr. Glenn Doran led the team that determined that the human remains discovered were 2,000 years older than the Great Pyramid in Egypt and 3,200 years older than King Tut. Three excavations over two years uncovered nearly 200 ritualistically buried individuals who had been remarkably well-preserved in the anaerobic peat bog. 91 of the skulls contained intact brain matter, allowing DNA tests to reveal familial relationships. Rachel Wentz
2: Well, Wendover taught me how to examine skeletons. I really learned to identify pathology among skeletons by working on the Wendover skeletons, um, looking at, again, injury patterns, traumatic injury. Uh, There's a young boy with spina bifida who had some serious health implications because of that condition. So again, just being able to see what these conditions and illnesses and injuries were like for people 7,000 years ago.
0: As Rachel Wendt's details in her book, Chasing Bones, her graduate program, at FSU provided her with the opportunity to travel around the world, including studies in London.
2: I did. When I was completing my master's degree, I also was very interested in museum works and so many wonderful collections are housed in museums, so I received my training in London. I spent my first summer in London studying museums. Uh, I returned to London the second summer to complete an internship within the Human Origins Group at the Natural History Museum in London, which was just an incredible experience because I was working among some of the, the best collections in the world, some of the best researchers in my field. And that led to trips to Paris, and it really opened up a whole different world I had never been exposed to.
0: Working at the Natural History Museum in London provided Wen's exposure to some amazing anthropological resources.
2: Well, the Human Origins group was tucked in the paleontology department. So every day when I came into work, I went down these dark halls lined with uh, ancient beasts from underwater realms. And I entered the kind of the dark collections of paleontology and walked among these incredible shelves, of dinosaurs from all over the world. So just being among the dinosaur skeletons was enough of a thrill. But they also have some really extensive skeletal collections. One of the collections I worked on was the Spitalfields collection, which is a historic, vast cemetery that was unearthed from uh, beneath London's streets. And um, many bioarchaeologists have done extensive studies on these. So I worked with one of the retired researchers uh, Taya Molson, and did some data collection for her and worked on some projects when I wasn't doing my, uh, my archivist work.
0: When most people talk of visiting Paris, they recall the Eiffel Tower or seeing the Mona Lisa or perhaps having wine at a sidewalk cafe. Rachel Wenz remembers all of that too, but her fondest recollections of Paris are the catacombs.
2: The catacombs were just a spectacular experience. I had gone my first summer and they were closed for renovations, so I was heartbroken. But when I went back my second summer, I was able to gain entry. In fact, they were actually closing at the time I entered, but I conned the guy into letting me in, and he let me go in by myself, so I had the the entire catacombs to myself without anyone under underneath, and it was just an amazing experience walking these tunnels that are just lined with human remains. It was really spectacular.
0: Photographs in Wentz's book, Chasing Bones, show the Paris catacombs, which are lined from floor to ceiling with carefully stacked human bones.
2: Literally lined with bones. Um, They are the results of overflowing cemeteries in Paris. And these remains were moved to the catacombs over a period of several years and they were just artfully displayed in stacks and stacks and stacks that line these narrow tunnels. The tunnels are actually um, extinct mines. They were used for, for mining underneath the streets of Paris. And so these vast tunnels are now lined with human remains and they have memorials throughout and, and just some really intricate designs made from human skeletons.
0: Although the bulk of Rachel Wen's graduate work was centered around the prehistoric bones of Florida's Windover site, she also did some culturally enriching archaeological work in Ukraine.
2: The Ukrainian work was actually on a Scythian burial mound, and it dated to about 325 B.C. Um, They had found uh, two skeletons the previous field season, so I went to Ukraine with a team from FSU, Uh, They were doing mapping of the site. So I was going to analyze the remains. So we ended up staying on a very rustic farm. It was an incredible cultural experience. I only had two skeletons to analyze, but living there for a few weeks among the Ukrainian people was really just one of the most exceptional experiences in my life.
0: Rachel Wen's archaeological field studies also took her to the sunnier and drier climate of the Caribbean.
2: I've accompanied the National Park Service uh, to do excavations on a site where they had encountered human remains in the past, and then I returned the following summer to do some collections work for the Park Service on St. Croix. And so that was a wonderful experience as well. It was as you can imagine, beautiful scenery from which you know on which to work.
0: While traveling to London, Paris, Ukraine, and the Caribbean might sound very glamorous, in her book. Chasing Bones and Archaeologists' Pursuit of Skeletons, Wens also described some very gruesome work at a forensics lab in Florida.
2: The forensics lab was an incredible experience as well. I had communicated with Michael Warren, who was the assistant director at the time, who happened to be uh, an ex-paramedic as well. We had very similar backgrounds, and he offered to provide a, a directed independent study. So one day a week, I would travel from FSU down to University of Florida and work in the C.A. Pound Human Identification Lab and there it really helped me hone my skills in trauma analysis he let me work up old cases that they had either never identified or never been returned to family members so I would just take a case and work it up from start to finish and um, it was a very different experience from working with archaeological remains because you're dealing with contemporary remains people who have died within the last 50 years or so and um so it was a, a bit more depressing, you know, we, you, the lab is strewn with bodies that have been recovered from various scenarios, you know, found in the woods or drownings. And um, so it, it was very fascinating work and I admire the work they do, but it made me really appreciate my archaeological specimens.
0: Rachel Wenz is director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network East Central Region, which is hosted by the Florida Historical Society at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
2: Well, the work I do with FPAN is public outreach and education, so it gives me the opportunity to talk to audiences, to teach them about archaeology, about site preservation in Florida, and I do that mainly by sharing my background, by teaching them about bioarchaeology. I bring in other FPAN members to talk about their specializations such as underwater archaeology because the point we want to get across is how precious these sites are and how we all need to work as citizens of Florida to preserve these sites and protect them. So that is our message at FPAN is site preservation protection and educating the public.
0: The book Chasing Bones and Archaeologists' Pursuit of Skeletons by Dr. Rachel Wenz is published by the Florida Historical Society Press. Them bones and bones and dry bones, them bones and bones and dry bones, and bones and bones and dry bones. Hear the word of the Lord. Toe bone connected to the foot bone, foot bone connected to the ankle bone, ankle bone connected to the leg bone, leg bone connected to the knee bone. Knee bone connected to the thigh bone, thigh
4: bone connected to the hip bone, hip bone connected to the backbone. Backbone connected to the shoulder bone, shoulder bone connected to the neck bone, neck bone connected to the head bone, hear the word of the Lord.
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to check our calendar of upcoming events, find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, The Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org.
4: In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features
1: historian James Cusick. Among all the perils of sea travel in colonial Florida was the danger of privateers. During times of conflict, Ship captains obtained licenses to attack and raid enemy vessels. What was it like to fall victim to a privateer? The crew and 39 passengers of the Spanish schooner Los Dos Hermanos found that out off Cape Canaveral in 1812. Their lookout shouted down to deck that two vessels were approaching on an intercept course. The vessels, heavily armed and swarming with men, closed in on both sides of the schooner and forced it to heave to. Then a boarding party came across and fell to looting. They broke open every container in sight, rummaged through the luggage, searched the passengers, confiscated all the provisions, and took 4,000 pesos in money and silver. After some discussion, the raiders released the schooner. These same privateers would hit three more ships in the following week. University of Florida historian James Cusick. This Moment in Florida History
4: was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is
0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. The St. Lucie County Regional History Center is now staffed by volunteers as a cost-saving measure. Janie Gould reports that a new exhibition shows photos, paintings, and models of some of the county's most notable historic structures.
5: The museum still has its permanent exhibits on cattle, fishing, citrus, and more, but now also is showing a collection of images of historic buildings. Historian and author Lucille Wrights is the education
6: director. This one over here is Zora Neale Hurston's house that was built about 1960 as a up-to-date new rental where they had been old wooden ones before. And I see the TV antenna to the left, that old-fashioned TV antenna. Right. We have this here because it is on the National Register and it's a landmark also, not because of the house, but because of the person who lived in it.
5: Two images show completely different states of repair of a historic house on Indian River Drive at Midway Road. Local history buffs know it as the Robinson House.
6: And this painting shows how beautiful it was. This photograph shows how bad it is right now. You can tell when you drive by the house that it probably had a really grand past. It was damaged in the hurricane and nothing has been
5: fixed up since. It's a, a two-story house with a second-floor porch and a first-floor porch. Bay windows, some Victorian touches. Could be quite a place.
6: There's some little table models here. And one is a 1901 school. There's the Boston house and, of course, the Cobb store. The Boston house, that table model it looks pretty much like that today. It was called Cresthaven. Sounds like a hotel or something. No, it means the place of rest at the top of the hill.
5: This is the uh, Seminole Chicky. I love the sounds. It feels like we're out in the woods. There's a young girl who
6: is working at a butter churn. It's where she's crushing up like corn. It's a mortar and pestle. The display includes turtle shells. They're making rattlers out of the little turtle shells. They put groups of them around the calves of their legs. And as they walk or dance, it makes that wonderful sound. The real Indians came here when we were a young museum and they had a baby and they would put a hammock up and put the baby in it while they were here. We're in a room that's titled Life on the Lagoon and I'm looking up. Is that a sawfish? Yes, that's a sawfish that was caught way back in about 1951 or two. The river used to be teeming with sawfish. Yeah, and sharks too. This one has a snout. As its name implies, it looks like a saw with very, very big teeth. They would slash it through the water and injure the other fish, and then open their mouth and eat them. A museum in this area would not be complete without something devoted to citrus and a new addition: bees. Where they're making honey. Here's their um, frames that they use for their starter for the combs and stuff, and a couple insect sprayers and a net to wear over your face so you don't get stung. It plays if you want to hear it. <laughs>
5: Was this piano in the Buckhorn Saloon? I
6: really don't know. These are pictures of the Buckhorn Saloon, though.
5: Where did it come from?
6: I'll have to look it up in the inventory to tell you that. It's been here
5: for a long time, I know. Yes, it is. It looks like a saloon-type piano, an old upright.
6: It had a music roll. I would agree with you, but this doesn't seem to open so that it plays music by itself. But everybody used to have upright pianos. That was a sign of culture.
0: Janie Gould prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Educator and activist Mary McLeod Bethune was pulled into the worlds of politics and civil rights, but her passion was always education. The school that she founded continues today as Bethune-Cookman University. Bill Dudley has this look at the life of Mary McLeod Bethune.
3: Democracy is for me and for 12 million black Americans, a goal to which our nation is marching It is a dream and an ideal in whose ultimate realization we have a deep and abiding faith.
4: The voice of Mary McLeod Bethune in 1939 is performed by author and poet Ursula Odom. Odom began playing Bethune before Florida audiences inspired by years of studying her life and her words.
3: From all accounts, she was a very direct, no-nonsense type of person. If she had a goal... She drove toward that goal relentlessly.
4: Bethune set and realized many goals during a long, eventful life. Born in 1875, she was the daughter of former slaves who became the first black student at the Moody Bible Institute. But instead of missionary work, she decided to become an educator and in 1904 founded a school for girls that would one day be Bethune-Cookman College in Daytona Beach. In the 1930s, she went to Washington, founding the National Council of Negro Women and becoming an advisor to presidents and an advocate for education and civil rights in America.
3: I had a hard time initially understanding how one person could do so many things in one lifetime. But then I realized that whenever something was not right, she spoke up. Whenever she thought something needed to be done, she did it. From childhood, she made it a point to be useful in her words. And with that as a central driving force, she just kept going.
4: One of the things that motivated Mary McLeod Bethune was the backward state of higher education in Florida for blacks, according to University of Florida African American and Women's Studies professor Stephanie Evans.
7: 1910, let's say, there were hundreds of students that had graduated college uh, in North Carolina, Georgia, in Ohio. There were seven black graduates, college graduates in Florida.
4: Evans is author of the new book, Black Women in the Ivory Tower, 1850 to 1954, an Intellectual History.
7: She wrote about the imperative to educate Negro girls, the imperative to educate Negro women, and was very clear that we weren't just made to be in someone's kitchen.
3: I believe with everything in me that education will break the shackles of slavery.
7: Bethune and... The thousands of women that are educators present America with a challenge. America talks about being a democracy, but it is women like Bethune who forced America's hand to say, if you're going to claim that all men are created equal and that we have equal rights and that we are about democracy, then you must back that up. A lot of the politicians and administrators now have wonderful words about diversity, but if those words are not backed up by policy that recognizes the injustices that have been done throughout America's history, then those words are empty. Black women allow a critical understanding and demand an application of those ideals Uh, that allow America to be America, that allow institutions of higher education to be excellent.
4: Today, more than 50 years after her death, the writings and achievements of Mary McLeod Bethune remain an inspiration for thousands worldwide. For Ursula Odom, her life offers a lesson to all who would seek to change society for the better.
3: That one person can make a difference. Whatever it is that you feel passionate about, you don't need permission to move toward achieving your goals, except from yourself. Just allow yourself to do what you
7: think is right and then believe that you can make a difference in life. In the same year that she died, in 1955, she published her last will and testament, a pretty famous document where she says, I leave you love. I leave you a responsibility for children. I leave you hope. I leave you faith. And she named these nine principles of her legacy that... This is the work that still needs to be done.
3: You will rarely hear me say integration or social equality. Instead, I speak of democracy, patriotism, and equal opportunity.
4: I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State, Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Our program is heard on all of the best public radio stations in Florida and is archived on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also find us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.